First Peter, the second chapter, and it's just two verses, verses 11 and 12. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In those two verses, two issues are seen to be massively important. In fact, I would say they are the two most important issues in the world, in the universe. They are the two issues that the whole Bible deals with throughout. And one of the ways that we know that we are aliens and exiles and strangers, like verse 11 says, is that the world, by and large, does not think that they are important issues. If the world did, the newspaper would look different, television would look different, radio would sound different, university classes would sound different, advertising would be different, business would be different. But by and large, these two issues, which the Bible treats as the most important issues in the world, are non-issues in our world, which makes aliens out of us who, who get our bearings from the Bible. The two issues are these, the salvation of the human soul and the glory of the name of God. Or to put it another way, the two big issues in the Bible and in the world are how do you save the soul so that it's not destroyed and how do you glorify God so that he's not belittled? Those are the two Huge issues in these two verses. Let's just get that before we even talk about any details. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. The issue here is whether the soul is going to be so fought against that it dies, that it is lost. There are anti-soul forces in the world. I mean, the world, by and large, doesn't even think about its soul. But this text says there's a war going on and there are desires in the world that are waging war trying to bring my soul to ruin. And if it succeeds, if the anti-soul forces win... My soul is lost, and if my soul is lost, everything is lost, and there is no recovery. Remember what Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Which means if the soul has been lost, there's no negotiating anymore. If the soul is lost, you don't buy it back. Is gone. If anti-soul forces win, they win. It's over. 
Jesus said in Luke 16 when he was talking about the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man went to Hades and Lazarus went to Abraham's lap and they were granted for a moment to see and commune in word and the man in Hades said, just send him over with a drop of water. I am in torment in these flames. And Abraham said, there is a gulf here that is so big So wide, so deep, that God has ordained nobody crosses either way, ever. It's over. That's an awesome reality. This is a reality that has to do with everybody. It has to do with everybody forever. And it has to do with everybody forever in huge ways that have to do with hell and heaven. And yet... There's no column in the newspaper. There's no public service announcement on the radio. There's no sound bite on television. There's no values clarification course at the university or in our schools. There's no government agency. There's not even a, a, a welfare pamphlet that gives one hint as to how to fight for our souls. The biggest issue that our souls face is a non-issue in the world. It's a non-issue. Which is why you're an alien. And a stranger. They, the world order, teach us how to fight AIDS and how to fight mosquitoes and sunstroke and drunk driving and pollen and depression, and rape, and fire, and theft, and cholesterol, and dandelions. But they don't teach us how to fight for our soul. Our world, you must get this, our world is passionately committed to the inconsequential. One of these days, that will not be the case. The eyes of the world will be opened and our obliviousness to what will then be seen to be so obvious will so stun the world that we will have no explanation for how we lived the way we lived in America. How the eternal condition of the human soul could be a non-issue will be absolutely inexplicable. It will boggle the mind as we stand before our judge. We're aliens. That's the first great issue. How Shall the soul of man be saved and not destroyed forever and ever? That is a big issue. Here's the second one. Verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, give glory to God on the day of visitation. 
The first issue is how the soul shall not be lost. The second issue is how God shall not be belittled. Or to, to make it positive, how the soul shall be saved. And now how God shall be glorified. The salvation of the soul and the glory of God are the two biggest issues in the universe. And they're non-issues for most people in America. This text says, the goal of all human behavior is to be the glory of God. Isn't that an incredibly sweeping statement? The goal of all your behavior from the time you get up in the morning until you go to bed at night is to draw attention to God. That's the significance of human life. The positive significance of human life consists in our capacity to deflect attention from ourselves to God. That's the meaning of human life, as God intended it to be. You see that? I'm not making that up. That's right here. Keep your behavior excellent so that the Gentiles might glorify God. Live, conduct yourselves, act, behave with a mind how can I direct their attention to God by the way I live? That's what life is for. We live in order to get attention for God. If we don't, if we don't live for God's glory, we become simply a little echo of a God-neglecting culture. It's a little echo. We fit in so well to this world that we can't direct anybody's attention out of the world, which is where God is. I just have the feeling that we're so afraid of being Amish, dressing wrong, riding a horse-drawn carriage, and being anti-modern or getting the wrong tie or not having a tan or... We're just so afraid of not being in step that we blend so well, nobody's saying, wow, look at God anymore because of the church. From the biblical standpoint, the greatest issue in the world is the glory of God and all behavior is meant to get attention for him. Keep your behavior excellent so that they will glorify God. So let me sum up these two. So far what we've seen. The two big issues in the world. One is the salvation of the soul and the other is the glory of God. One is how shall this soul be saved and not destroyed? And the other is how shall this God be glorified and not belittled? And these are non-issues in the world. Now, if I believed that right at this point in the sermon, we all had embraced that, those two truths and the weight of them, 
as the center of our lives, as the passion of our souls, as the commitment of our heart. I'd be happy to just stop right now because I think the rest of this, these two verses would just take care of themselves. I wouldn't need to do any more exposition. It would just happen. One of the things that I am burdened about as I get on the airplane and watch the introduction to the movie and as I look at the world, Northwestern magazine, is it Northwest? Northwest Airlines. I always get the bank and the airline mixed up. The, uh, look at that magazine and see what values are there and I watch people and I go to Alaska and watch people there. My burden today is the absence of God in America. It's just, sometimes I try to change my, my theme and I can't. It's just like the Lord won't let me loose from this awesome, unbelievable, unspeakable, unthinkable absence of God in American culture. I'm reading a book. A brand new book right now called uh, God in the Wasteland. God in the Wasteland by David Wells. And I want to read you one paragraph from it so that you can get a flavor for what's moving me. And it, it is him too, evidently. And when, when I read it, I, my heart really resonates with David Wells' writings these days. And here's the paragraph. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. And his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. It is a condition we have assigned him after having nudged him out to the periphery of secularized life. His truth is no longer welcome in our public discourse. The engine of modernity rumbles on and he is but a speck in its path. So what I thought, what I've prayed is that in a message like this, what if a thousand people this morning from Bethlehem... Um, were so gripped by the weightiness of God, the importance of God, that God became everything for us. And that from morning until night, we were ravished by God and thinking about God and in wonder of God, gripped by the glory of God and His Son and His Spirit and His purpose and His triumph and His destiny. So that... Within a few weeks or months, there would be a, a thousand locations at work and at play at home and in the neighborhood and in leisure. A thousand places where God was no more weightless. 
but that by his people he had been brought to bear upon that situation so that he was being thought about and that there was a weightiness about him. You know, do you know that the Hebrew word kavod for glory means weight, heaviness. When Paul talks about a weight of glory, he means a glory of glory and a weight of weight of God upon the people of God someday. And the purpose of the gospel and the kingdom is to bring that weight and that glory to bear upon life now. So when I, when I look at American life and I just walk through this society and I say, don't you realize that you are absolutely committed to the inconsequential and that the biggest issues in the world, the salvation of your soul and the glory of your God and maker and judge are not on your agenda. Can you feel why I would want to preach this sermon and pray that you would not treat God as weightless? nor be an instrument of the ongoing dissemination of his inconsequentialness in American life, but rather you would be an instrument of bringing to bear his weightiness upon your situation in life. Well, I don't think that I can stop here, and I have just two more things to say, because I see these as so central in the text it would be unwarranted to pass over them. So let me dwell for the last few minutes on just two other things that I think are meant now by God to make God more visible, to make his weightiness more felt, and to make the dissemination of his value, big, precious value, felt wherever we go. Here's the first one, this idea of our being strangers and aliens. You see that in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Now, the reason that's important, the reason we see it's important, is because he said the same thing in chapter 1, verse 1. He said the same thing in chapter 1, verse 17. And now for the third time, he's calling the church aliens. This must be important for Peter. He's writing to churches all over these provinces in Asia, and he says, you're all aliens and exiles scattered out there. Your homeland is heaven. You are all plugged into different peoples and societies, and therefore you are aliens, and your sovereign is not Nero nor President Clinton. Your sovereign is Jesus. Your constitution is not the American constitution. It is the Bible. Your ethos and your ethic come from heaven, not from the earth. Your standards don't flow from television or fashion magazines. They flow from a reflection on biblical principle as it applies to our life and culture. You are aliens. You are exiles. Now, verse 9, if you can remember back five weeks, five weeks. This is a spotty series, I know, on First Peter. But we really are moving through First Peter, believe it or not. And uh, five weeks ago, we were on verses 9 and 10, and that gives the explanation. If we were doing them back to back, it would, it, you'd hear it a lot better. But verse 9, you are a chosen race. 
That's why you're exiles here. You're a royal priesthood and a holy nation. That's why you're exiles here. You are a people for God's own possession, not for the possession of anybody here. That's why you're exiles. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why you're exiles. So verse 9 was the lead-in. Why he calls the church exiles. It's not a negative thing. It's not because you dress wrong. It's because you're gods. You belong to God. You have a totally different sovereign and constitution. We are aliens because we belong to him. Now, what does that mean practically for your life? The way I experience it, and I think the way the Bible puts it forth is when you think of yourself as an alien in a culture and you want to be an alien and not be absorbed into the culture, then you don't drift. You don't drift with the flow of the culture. You swim, which means you think. You stop and you don't assume that television is the way it ought to be. You don't assume that advertising values are the values that ought to hold sway. You don't assume that what you hear on the radio is what you ought to hear or that it's good for the soul or that it glorifies God. You just stop. You stop. You think. You ponder. You consult your counselor in heaven. You read your constitution and you meditate on what it means to be an alien here and whether the values here are the values there and how can I bring those there to bear here. That's what it means to be an alien. You stop. You ponder. When you see yourself as an alien and God is your only sovereign and your citizenship in heaven, you ponder what is good for the soul and what is for the glory of God in relation to food and videos and bathing suits and birth control and driving speeds and bedtimes and financial savings and education for children, and unreached people, peoples, and famine, and refugee camps, and sports, and death. You stop and you ponder, as an alien, is the way everybody thinks about these things, and the values that everybody seems to have about these things, and the way people are pursuing these things, Is that heavenly? Is that who I am? Is that who God is? Is that what this constitution says? Is that what my sovereign ordains? And if that happens, if you become an alien like that, a kind of proactive bringing to bear of God upon American culture, as you experience it in your home, in your neighborhood, and work, if that happens, then I think the weightiness of the salvation of the soul and the weightiness of the glory of God begin to show. Which leads me to the last, the last point in verse 12, namely that the battle for the soul and the battle for the glory of God is fought first at the level of our desires, and second, at the level of our behavior. Now, you can see this progression. Verse 11 says that there are fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. 
So there you've got lusts or desires. The word is simply desires. Fleshly desires are waging war against the soul. So you've got a desire battle to fight. Don't be like those who say desires are neutral, inconsequential. They're not neutral. They can kill the soul. And there's a battle to be fought quite before you even get to the conduct level of your life. And then in verse 12, it says, um, develop a behavior that is excellent. Now, that order is not without significance, because if you fight in the other direction, you become a hypocrite or a legalist. Remember how Jesus uh, said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and plate and inside where your desires are. You're full of extortion and greed. In other words, it, it won't do any good to try to spruce up the outward, go to church, keep your nose clean morally, when inside you have all the same desires that the world has. That won't do. You can't do it in the long run for one thing. And if you succeeded, you'd be called a hypocrite on the other. So how does this work? Let's close by just pondering how verse 12 works. Why is it, or how can it be, that people in the world look at a Christian behavior and even though they might for a season slander or make fun or cluck their tongues or whatever, they're going to come to glorify God. How does that work? How, how do people come to glorify God because of behavior, your behavior? The best key to unlocking that question came to me from chapter 3, verse 15. It's a pretty familiar verse. There are other keys in the, in the book, but this one helped me most. In 1 Peter 3, 15... Peter says, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. So picture this. Here are people that you're working with, playing with, on a softball team with, say, or eating lunch with at work. They're watching the outside. They can't see the inside. They don't know what's going on inside. They can't see that. They can see the outside. And what they see on the outside in verse 15 here causes them to ask about your hope. Hmm. Why would they do that? Why, why would they ask about hope? What is hope? Hope is the experience of having your desires directed toward a stable, strong, constant, unfailing object that satisfies so that you have confidence and hope. So your desires have been taken off of money, taken off of prestige and climbing the ladder, taking off of illicit sex, taking off of an unwise use of all kinds of foods and drinks and taking off of, of, of leisure. Your, your desires has, have been weaned away from those as their satisfaction and your desires are now directed towards God and his promises and his future and his person and his fellowship so that he's precious like we've been singing this morning. And that's called hope in the Bible. 
fixed, firm confidence in who God is and what he promises. And somehow when that happens, behavior starts to look different to people. And I think the reason it does is because these kinds of things start to emerge. You don't become perfect. There's still plenty of room to criticize and grow. But these sorts of things start to emerge. Humility of love. So that it doesn't look to the world like self-exaltation is your portion anymore. And they wonder where you're getting your ego strokes. Or another one would be fearless courage. So it doesn't look like safety means a lot to you. It means a lot to them. Where you, where you get this courage to take such risks? Is your help coming from somewhere other than where I have resources? Or a third might be self-denying generosity. And they look and they say, hmm, he sure gives a lot of his money away. Or at that moment gave a lot of his time away. I love money. I mean, without money, I wouldn't have any happiness. He seems to be sort of cavalier about it. And what, where's he getting his confidence and his hope then? Or another might be um, joyful simplicity. A simple life that just is not carried away by the latest thing that comes along. You've got to have it. You know, you got to look the latest and you got to have the latest because for the world, having is being. And that's the exact opposite of what Christianity is. Being in Christ, in fellowship, on the way to glory is meaning, not having. And so if you're kind of person for whom having seems not to be very important, scratch their heads and say, what is this? Where does this hope? Or another one might be peaceful suffering. Get sick or there's trouble in the marriage or at home or there's financial stress uh, at the office or conflict. And you have an equanimity about you. A kind of, not glib, praise the Lord anyhow, kind of cheeriness that doesn't look like you're in touch with reality, but a a deep kind of steady joyfulness that isn't knocked over by these troubles. Those are the kinds of behaviors that happen to your outer life that become visible when your desires are no longer worldly lusts, but are desires directed to God, fixed on Him and His promises and His fellowship, so that it spills over now in a behavior that makes the world say, would you just tell me what makes you tick? Now, they may not like your answer. It doesn't mean they're going to get converted. In fact, this text is very realistic in verse 12. It says that there's both slander And there's giving glory. And it doesn't say when one stops and the other starts. This day of visitation, I'm not sure what that means. It could be a day of visitation in this world through conversion. That's the meaning basically in Luke 19.44 when Jesus says Jerusalem didn't know the day of their visitation when he arrived. And there are a lot of people that are being visited by the Lord in this world. Or it might mean the final visitation of judgment upon the world when everybody's going to have to wake up and recognize that God is glorious. Well, let me try to sum it up and bring it to a close. If you want 
to fight against the anti-soul forces in the world so that your soul lives forever? Like verse 11. And if you want to so live as to magnify the glory of God through your behavior, and if you want to bring the weightiness and not the weightlessness of God to bear upon your relatives and your partners at work and your culture, then be an alien. Get a mindset that I do not belong here ultimately. Christ is my sovereign. The Bible is my constitution. Heaven is my home. Life is two seconds long like the vapor in James And I am just passing through. How can I, while I am here, bring God to bear on this place and these people to the greatest degree? Be an alien. And second, set your desires and your affections on God so that your hope is in him. And then there will emerge gradually through sanctification a beauty of behavior that will eventually win out over slander and cause people to praise God. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I want that so much for my life. There's nothing I want more than for my soul to be saved and my life to count for the glory of your name. And I want that counting for the glory of your name to mean the bringing with me this whole church to glory. I want to worship you with these people for 10 million years as the beginning of our stay together in heaven. And I want us together as a church to so live and so love and so risk that people outside will not think we fit in so nicely, but that they will wonder. Even if they slander, they will wonder. And, oh, God, bring occasions where we can tell people the reason for the hope that is in us. Because we have a great God, a sovereign God, a coming son, a dying savior, a risen Christ, a judge over all. Lord, make it so real in our lives that we bring the weightiness of your glory to bear on our cities and on Guyana and on Guinea and Siberia and Russia, and Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico, and the Philippines, and Japan, and India, and China. Lord, use us. In Jesus' name, amen.